Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. While Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is running for re-election with Florida's primary this week, he's also campaigning to get another slate of candidates elected. Hey, Sarasota, it's Bridget Ziegler. Hey, it's Caminos, how are you? And we are here at Shriners on Geneva in Sarasota getting ready for the GOAT, the great governor, Ron DeSantis, to come. He's here doing his education tour, and we are so excited and honored to be endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis in Sarasota County. We also have... Hillsborough and Manatee school board candidates here today, and it is an awesome crowd. Bridget Ziegler with Tim Enos are two of at least 30 school board candidates on the Florida ballot tomorrow who have been endorsed by DeSantis. The governor has hosted several events across the state during what he's calling an education agenda tour. He's reportedly spending his own campaign money on these races as well. The Miami Herald believes it's the first time a governor has endorsed school board candidates. Typically, these are nonpartisan races. Now, Democrats have followed suit with their own roster of school board endorsements. The stakes are high for who wins these races. Schools in Florida and other states are facing a long list of challenges, from a massive teacher shortage to new limits on how to teach topics like race and sexual orientation. So why are these school board races becoming so politicized? And where do the candidates stand on these issues? We'll answer those questions and more after the break. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming Andrew Atterbury. He covers education policy in Florida for Politico. Thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Chris Curran. Chris is an associate professor of education leadership and policy at the University of Florida. Chris, welcome. Thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity. Andrew, let me start with you. I mentioned these endorsements, dozens so far. Help me understand the political calculation. What does the governor get by getting involved in these races at the local level? Sure. Well, I think one thing that he gets for sure is he will have people, if the people that he uh, endorsed win, he'll have some some allies that well, he already knows where they stand because they had to fill out a survey to see where they fit in with his agenda on education. So he knows from the jump that these are people who back his ideas and his policies. Very quickly, what, what are those ideas? What's the kind of common thread that connects the, the candidates that he's endorsed? Sure. The big one, parental rights, which would be giving parents uh, more information, more knowledge, more light into what's going on in their education. Uh, school choice is a big one. Whether it's private schools or having charter schools available, that's another huge thing for DeSantis. And another one this year is curriculum transparency. You see this all over the country right now. People want to know what kids are learning, what are they reading, what's in these books. Those are, those are I think, probably the big three right now. Chris, we're going to dig into that uh, in just a moment. Before we do that, I'd, I'd love to get a sense from you of the, the context here. What does it say about the current political climate, yes, in Florida, but, but nationwide, that you have a sitting governor weighing in on races like these? As you mentioned, this is a somewhat unprecedented level of involvement of a governor in this sorts of race. I think it's important to note that the politicization of school board races is not entirely new. We've seen 
influence by teachers unions, by interest groups over the years, right, on central political issues. I think what we're seeing here, though, is that education has risen to the national level. This is part of the discussion, both at the state and federal level, largely because of what we've seen coming out of the pandemic, right? Parents and families have experienced education in a different way, have faced different challenges, and many of these challenges have become contentious and politicized through the process. So I think what we're seeing here with Governor DeSantis and his level of involvement in local school board races is the taking of really a national and state level conversation down to the local level in a way that has implications both locally, but also for the upcoming governor's race and potentially even beyond the federal um, and presidential races. Chris Kern, before we zoom back in on Florida, give us the national perspective. How much is is what's happening nationwide? Uh, How much is what's happening in Florida emblematic of what's happening nationwide? Most school board elections nationwide are nonpartisan. However, there are exceptions to that with individual states that have partisan elections and in some states options that vary by the local school district. We've seen legislation here in Florida that in the past cycle tried to introduce or reintroduce partisan elections. We actually had them prior to 1998 and a voter referendum and change that that took that away. Um, But what we're seeing is that these these experiences here in Florida are a national scope uh, trend and trajectory. Right. And so the conversation in Virginia, clearly the governor election there last year um, signaled, right, that the education is going to be a central piece of, of much of the upcoming presidential debate and ongoing at the gubernatorial level in states. So we're seeing states introduce policies that are trying to ban things like critical race theory. We're seeing, as Andrew mentioned, many of these policies that are focused on parental rights and individual freedoms and transparency in the curriculum and what's happening inside of schools. And so this national debate that's playing out and increasingly is becoming both politicized and interlinked with different, what we might describe the sort of cultural elements or cultural wars um, between uh, different parties and different ideologies in the United States is now being taken down to both the state level here in Florida and locally at the school board level. Chris, I want to ask you about the the role that school boards play, uh, yes, an education policy in a county or a school district, um, and how much that's changing as, as a result of this. Um, are, are these positions or what these positions do starting to change? School board roles have changed a lot, particularly if we look back over the, the last century, right? Um, we have a strong tra- tradition in this country of local control over education, but increasingly we're seeing larger roles for the state and federal level. And this follows policies and trends we've seen going back to No Child Left Behind in the 1980s, a formidable report called A Nation at Risk that really called national attention to education as a national concern. Um, At the same time, I think we're seeing, though, through the pandemic especially, that the role of the school board still remains very central to education policy debates. The sorts of federal and state initiatives and priorities play out at a local level through decisions of local school boards. And for many families and and voters within localities, the school board is their direct route to democratic representation and their way of engaging at a local level by showing up to meetings. So what we're seeing, I think, is a changing role for school boards, yet one in which their role is still very critical, as we've seen in the pandemic with decisions around masking and um, decisions about opening schools and things that in many cases provide attention and even counterbalances to state priorities. Andrew, I want to draw from your perspective as someone who's covered Florida for some time, focusing here on education. When did you begin to see this percolating? When did you begin to see changes happening in school board meetings and indeed in the conversations surrounding who's running for those seats? Sure. It seems like the real easy place to pinpoint this is the pandemic and COVID-19. People started doing more classes online. Parents started seeing more about what, what their kids are learning. But then also, 
a lot of it started with uh, the debate over masking in schools because in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, he came out, he came out fall 21. He said, we're not going to do masking of students. We're going to have every, everybody can have a mask if they want to, but we're going to outlaw like blanket mask policies. And about a dozen school districts decided to do mask requirements anyways. They had, they had blanket mask mandates for students against the governor's wishes. It was a huge ordeal out here. The, the Board of Education was upset about it. Threatened uh, fines, there were, right? There were, there were penalties. Sure, they were threatening the fines. They were going to try to take away board member salaries. So, and, and then the uh, Biden administration stepped in as well. So it was this whole – add on the whole proxy war on top of that. So that was a huge, huge boiling point. But even before that – I think if you were in Tallahassee, you'd hear a lot of times lawmakers in the DeSantis administration as well. They didn't like how some of their policies were being carried out locally. I think one example that sticks out to me is back to school choice. There, there were some school boards who didn't like charter schools uh, opening up or, or private schools opening up their mm-hmm. area, and they would perhaps uh, push back on that. And you'd always see people, uh, lawmakers in Tallahassee, taking issue with that. They, they, they would they would talk about uh, term limits on school board members or uh, t- cutting pay of school board members to kind of get them to to listen to the policies up here. But then the new push now is, okay, well, let's endorse some folks and get some allies on the board and get some people that we know back our ideas on the school boards, which is the new way we're seeing it now. Andrew, I want to ask you how Democrats have responded, particularly how the two candidates running for uh, the Democratic nomination for governor in Florida, Charlie Crist, the congressman, and uh, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed have responded. Um, I gather they've made some endorsements of their own. Sure, Congressman Chris, he definitely he endorsed some candidates along with the uh, the Florida Democratic Party. I think has endorsed twenty nine candidates. So that's so we've got twenty nine candidates from the Democratic Party, and I think thirty now from the governor from Governor Santis. Uh, out of those, I think only about a seven truly link up. So there's about seven battles between seven. Keep in mind seven nonpartisan battles yes. between uh, candidates who are endorsed by the governor, who's Republican. Uh, and the Democratic Party. So it's really interesting to see. I think those are seven that are really going to have to watch uh, to see how they turn out. It's kind of like a test of the governor's influence. Commissioner Freed, I don't think she's done endorsements for local candidates for school board members, but she has been one. She She's a really big uh, person who, like, pushes back on – as soon as the governor says something, she's, like, right there trying to push back and, and get her word out there. And education is something she's definitely seized on. Uh, she's having a – Back and forth with the same administration now about school lunches, and it's like a whole federal, another whole another federal proxy war going on between them. So she's she's doing it on that front. Hmm. Andrew, I want to step back and look at how integral education policy has been to the governor's political agenda. Teachers are getting ready to go back to school. They have to adjust their curriculums after two new laws the governor signed into law this year: the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill and the Stop Woke Act. Remind us how these pieces of legislation are being implemented, will be implemented in the classroom going forward. Sure, you nailed it. Those are so those are two really big ones, uh, and I think the "Don't Say Gay" bill or the parental rights and education bill that that thing is it's got some really massive implications. I think a lot of it, I mean, some of it's be, it's being it's being challenged in court right now, which is kind of the typical thing after mm-hmm. session in Florida, where we end up going to court for a few months or a year. Uh, and one thing that's really central to the parental rights bill or the "Don't Say Gay" bill. It seems like uh, now we're learning more about these these student support guides that school districts have, and the State Board of Education just last week raised issue with this, that some, some of these guides uh, that went out to school districts, they have language in them that would appear to kind of discourage teachers from, I guess you would say, outing a student who might be LGBTQ to their parents, and for people, or for, for lawmakers and policymakers in Florida, anything that would try to keep the parents out of information about their child, that is 
a total a total bad thing now, especially with everything going on with parental rights. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing, so I think that is that kind of pinpoints exactly where they are on parents. Like it, for, at this point, it's like they want to make sure parents know everything that's going on with kids, and that's curriculum. So now, if there's any change in the in the child's education, they're supposed to get some kind of alert from the school district. And so that's that's a huge policy. I think people are having to shape out now. They're, the school districts are, are reconsidering their guides. Uh, just, I got that board of education meeting last week. The board member he like put up two guides in the air, and he's like, "I have issue with these two guides right here." And, and if you reach out to the local school districts, those two guides in particular are already under review. So, so school districts are having to move pretty fast on this stuff and, and correct everything. And, and as far as uh, what was the other bill you mentioned? I think I mentioned both the uh, the Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Act. The other one. Oh yeah, Stop Woke Act. That one's also getting that one's also <laughs> getting sued right now. So that one more about history. So there, that one's interesting because it's it's going against certain workplace trainings and also education as like mainly history. So it's getting challenged on two different fronts. And in the education, in higher ed especially, people are arguing that it's it's changing the way they teach and that they're worried they can't teach certain lessons. But at the same time, the bill says that you are supposed to teach about things like the civil rights area and slavery. So it kind of, people are arguing it creates a, a gray area for them and they're really not sure exactly where the policy starts and stops. Got an email from Tina, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, got an email here from, from Kimberly in Northern Kentucky and she's emailing, as a former teacher and a parent, I'm dismayed and appalled by this latest trend in political rhetoric attacking educators in the name of so-called parental rights. Educators are already under very strict scrutiny and constraints regarding what they can and can't do in the classroom because of requirements from the school board curricula and the State Department of Education. It's one thing she writes to ask for transparency. It's another to create legislation to control, hamstring, and muzzle teachers. My question is, at what point do you respect and trust the teachers who are trained professionals who have studied child development and know what it is and it's not developmentally, what, what is and what is not developmentally uh, appropriate? Um, Chris, let me ask you about this phrase that we've heard used a number of times here, parental rights. How do we define it? Uh, and how contested is that term? Is, is this issue that, um, that Kimberly is referring to in her email? Well, I think this term is at the central uh, central tenet of a lot of these debates right now. We see organizations that have popped up, really, uh, many of them from the grassroots and otherwise that are centering parental rights. It, it even across the aisle, while it's uh, clearly a part of Governor DeSantis's rhetoric and uh, legislation and, and political priorities, we can actually look at the um, uh, talking points and, and stances of uh, candidate Charlie Crist, right, running uh, for the Democratic position here in Florida and this same sort of terminology of, of freedom to learn, right? And this notion of freedom comes up even in his language. And so I think while that means different things across each of the parties, right, in terms of how that's implemented, there is a, a central point that people are locking onto this idea of parental input, parental autonomy, parental um, control on some of these aspects of education. And, and it really becomes this, this debate then about what is the proper role of public education in the United States? Um, is it just there to teach academic skills or is it serving a broader role that is about socialization into our nation and the democratic process? Andrew Atterbury, I want to ask you about the role uh, outside groups are playing here. We've talked about the governor's endorsements and the endorsements by the Democratic uh, Party in Florida. Uh, ask you about a nonprofit group, in particular Moms for Liberty, a conservative nonprofit group that's campaigned against COVID restrictions uh, and curricula that address LGBT issues, race, critical race theory. Uh, we're going to hear from that group's co-founder just a little bit later in the show. But first, I want to play a bit of tape here of Governor DeSantis speaking uh, at the Moms for Liberty Summit, which I gather took place in Tampa last month. 
There are some people out there trying to say true freedom is when you force kids to wear masks eight hours a day if you're not locking them out of school and uh, restricting people in all different ways. I don't think that's a very appealing definition of freedom. And so we're really excited to be here. We're excited that the state of Florida has led the way on so many issues uh, over these last three years. And yes, education has been a big one. Uh, Andrew, this is a group that started, uh, as we were talking about sort of the recent history of all of this, w- with masking. That was a very sort of central or keystone issue for, for this group. Just describe how instrumental it's been in promoting the agenda that the, the governor has had here when it comes to education, sort of what the relationship is like between that group, Moms for Liberty, and uh, with Governor DeSantis. Sure. I mean, like you said, the, the fact that, that the governor was speaking at their event in Tampa, their summit in Tampa, says a lot. Uh, there were a lot of uh, Ben Carson was there. There were some there were some big guests at that event. Uh, former Secretary Betsy DeVos was there. Uh, this was all in Tampa at their summit over the summer. There were about 500 people there, from, and these are for people from all over the country. And the they all kind of shared the same vibe, which was that they they didn't like the actions that their school boards had taken. And and again, it, it a lot of it points back to and these are people from a lot of these people from out, out west too, where there were even stricter mask mandates and even vaccination mandates, which we don't have in Florida. But those were those were those were clearly a tipping point for a lot of parents who didn't like what they were seeing from their school boards. And part of that, you know, the whole summit was there were there were trainings there to help people who were parents to learn more about how to get involved and how to run for school boards. I think one thing you see a lot from these parental rights groups and Moms for Liberty, they're they're active in these school board meetings. They're getting people out there. They're getting their voices heard, which is something that a lot of times before the pandemic, school board meetings didn't really. There were the there were certain things that would trigger a lot of public intrigue, and some of these meetings would go long into the night, and people would be arguing. But since the pandemic, it seems like just more and more of these meetings were doing that. A lot more parents were showing up, and they were ha- having their voices heard. And a lot of times, you would see the school boards kind of treating them in a bad in a bad light, and there would be a lot of people getting kicked out of meetings, and people were getting upset. It just seems like that kind of furthered uh, made everything a little bit more heated. But with with that, these people in these groups, a lot of these parents, they have the same ideologies as the governor. So it, it kind of aligns perfectly for them to get involved together. And with the governor, I, I think I think Moms for Liberty endorsed some of their own school board candidates. I don't remember exactly how they align. I know that some of them are also backed by the governor as well. Uh, but they're but they're where they stand on their issues is pretty close right now. Let's add two new voices to the conversation. Tina Deskovich is a former school board member in Brevard County. She's also the co-founder of that group, Moms for Liberty, a national nonprofit that's campaigned against COVID restrictions and curriculums that address LGBT issues, racial discrimination, or critical race theory. I want to welcome her to the show, along with Andrew Sparr, who's the president of Flores Education Association. That is the largest teachers union in the state. He's a former elementary school teacher, and his wife is a public school music teacher. Thank you both for joining us. Appreciate it. Tina, let me start with you and have you pick up on, on what uh, Andrew was talking about just there a, a moment ago, sort of the genesis of your group and what it's evolved uh, to be. You were, as I said, a school board member. You, you, didn't, you didn't win re-election. Uh, that kind of hinged on this issue of, of mandatory masking in, in your district. What were the perspectives or voices that you thought were missing from school boards when you were serving on one? It was very clear to me early on when I was serving on the school board that I mean, you know, our organization is working to get parents more involved at the policymaking level and have input and transparency at that level, because it was very clear to me in the beginning that parents weren't showing up. You know, we we say we fight for parental rights, but on the other side of that, we also want parental involvement. I, I feel like uh, parents neglected for decades education, and myself included. You know, I live in an A district. My 
kids were at A schools. They brought home A's. And I just didn't pay attention to what was going on. And I think that was very common around the United States. And when schools started shutting down around the United States, parents started plugging in and queuing in a little bit more. So I, I think that's been the missing voice for a long time in public ed. You served on a school board, as I said, and, and you mentioned that those were, were nonpartisan elections traditionally. Now you have the governor making these endorsements. You have the Democratic Party making endorsements as well. It, it strikes me that the horse seems to be out of the barn at this point. And I wonder if you, you wrestle with the consequences of that. Is, 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 there, is there a problem as you see it with the fact that this has become politicized or made partisan? Do, do you worry about that, that, that this has become more political than it, than it has been historically? Yeah, not at all, because it's been political for some time. I just think half of America hasn't realized how political it's been. I mean, my race in 2016, the Democrat Party here in Brevard County was completely aligned with my opponent, who was a Democrat. Uh, she was on all their mailers, all their flyers. They knocked doors for her again in 2020. Uh, the Democrat Party was her biggest promoter, my opponent. And so, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate that it's political, but it's been political for a long time. And one half of the uh, American public has just now waking up to that the party's been going on. Andrew Spar, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Again, you lead the, the largest teachers union in the state of, of Florida. And uh, I saw a couple months back, there was a poll that was commissioned by Hart Research Associates. That's a Democratic firm. They conducted the poll, rather. American Federation of Teachers commissioned it. And uh, it showed that there was strong support for a number of these policies. Uh, you know, By a 32 percentage point margin, Respondents said they were more likely to vote for candidates who believe public schools should focus less on teaching race and more uh, on core subjects. This is in battleground states like Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. By 27 points, they said schools should be banned from teaching sexual orientation and gender identity to kids in kindergarten through through third grade. How do you process results like that from, from a survey? How does that inform your perspective on what you're seeing and uh, what you're hearing from groups like Tina's? Yeah, look, I, I, at the end of the day, what every teacher wants is to make sure that every child is getting the education uh, they deserve and need. And, you know, I, I think for a long time uh, in public schools, we have engaged. I, I've been part of it through our school advisory councils when I was still in the classroom, um, through work that I did as a music teacher, getting parents engaged in school and being part of school. It, it's That has been what we've always worked towards, right? So this idea of, of parents being part of the education, parents are the public schools, right? Public schools are parents, teachers, staff, administrators, and community all working together to make sure that we educate every child. And that is every child, regardless of race, background, zip code, or ability. And, and I really stress the ability part because very often uh, some of our students who aren't getting the support they need are our students with special needs. And so that has been something that as educators, we have certainly uh, focused on and continue to focus on. Our members uh, care about kids. They have to connect to kids personally. We have to know who they are, who their families are, because kids don't learn unless we, unless they know we care. And so obviously we want to have that, uh, that connection and we have that bond as well, quite honestly, that sacred bond with parents. You know, as a parent myself, you know, I, I sit in the car every day uh, after I pick up my daughter from school on days that I can pick her up. Uh, and we talk about what did she do in school that day? What did she learn? What did what was the most challenging thing she did? What was the most exciting thing she learned that day? Mm -hmm. Parents do that everywhere, you know, because that is our role as parents. Right. And, and that's really what I think it's all about. Uh, I think the infusion of politics in our public schools uh, is is quite concerning. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. You're listening to 1A.
Let's get back to the conversation with this email from Patty. She writes, our local school board in Michigan has endured much controversy due to an elected school board member, vice chair of our county Republican Party, one of the signers of our state's false electors document, her support to limit what is taught in history classrooms, ban LGBT books in our libraries and install cameras in classrooms so parents can catch teachers is dividing our community. I wonder, as these school board races get more divisive, as they get more political, um, what could the consequences be for the quality of education that, that students get? You know, I think the goal is to get everybody more involved, not because not make it more divisive, but to get the conversation out there. Um, what we've seen happening over the last few years, especially over the last two years, is one part of our society, the parent part, is being shut down and silenced. And that's what's making it divisive. When school board members, you know, and I want to go back to some of the things Andrew said about teachers, because we believe in partnering with our teachers. I, you know, my children have all had wonderful teachers in the public school system, and we do believe in partnering them. But we do not want to co-parent with the government. And what that means for us is at the policy level, with the school district that are making these decisions, um, you know, parents should be driving and have a seat at the table and have input on these decisions decisions for policies that are driving the district. Now, that's very different than pushing back against teachers. So the situation in Michigan you're speaking of, I'm not familiar with. I don't know what's happening there exactly. But what needs to happen is that, you know, they need to have community forums and town halls and, and bring these discussions out. Because what's happened here in Brevard, uh, especially after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, massacre that mm -hmm. happened, you know, you know, it was very toxic here in Florida after that for school board meetings. And people like to say that school board meetings, this is a new thing where hundreds show up angry. Um, that was going on long before here in Florida, long before COVID. And so, you know, but what we did here in Brevard is we had town halls. We had meetings where people shouted and screamed and yelled and cried and did all the things. And I was sitting on the school board during that time, and it was very difficult to serve during that time. But what happened at the end of that is the community came together for solutions that everybody could live with for school security. That's what needs to happen. Happen on all of these issues. That's what makes our republic, our form of government, so wonderful. Andrew, Andrew how do you react to that? Uh, Andrew Spar, how do you react to what Tina's saying there? Um, you, of course, have, have heard the same shouting and yelling at, at, at these meetings, and I'd, I'd just love to pose the question I posed to her to you as well, and that is, are we seeing consequences of this in, in quality of education as you see it as a, as a former teacher and as someone who, who works with so many teachers in the state? Yeah, I actually think we are. Um, I think the the tone, the tenor, the threats that are made against not just school board members, but even against teachers and staff and administrators, where we've seen people come to schools and shout and yell when there's kids present. Those kinds of, of things are, are, are very concerning. Um, when we talk about this being America, you know, think about who we are. We, you know, this idea of banning books, this idea uh, of limiting what kids learn, uh, you know, I agree that parents are very much an integral part of our public schools. They are our public schools. Uh, but I think what's very challenging for school board members, of course, is that uh, everyone has different opinions. And, you know, look, what people don't talk about here in the state of Florida very often, when there's a school district with, let's say, 75,000 students, you're talking about 75,000 families who have different vantage points, different views on how they want to approach different things. But we still have one public school system. And, and so uh, that is why currently in Florida, if, if a parent doesn't want their child reading a specific book, if they don't want them participating uh, in a specific assignment, then they can ask and get an alternative assignment. That happens in every school district in the state of Florida. Um, the idea is when we talk about parental rights, parental rights for who? Because every parent should have a voice in the process. We have parents who work two and three jobs who may not have a lot of resources or support 
And their rights and their voice is just as important as a parent who may have a lot of resources and support and the ability to to come to school at various times uh, for their kid. Uh, so we've got to balance that in our school system. And, and I think it's a very challenging thing that we do, but it's why, you know, the school I taught at where my wife still teaches us where we met, uh, Turi T. Small Elementary School in Daytona Beach, is a school where 98% of the kids live in poverty. Uh, poverty presents all kinds of challenges. And what I wish we were talking about is how are we dealing with the challenges uh, that we face on the curriculum side? What are we doing right now about the massive teacher and staff shortage in our state? Those, When there's not a teacher in the classroom, kids aren't getting an education, right? I think we can agree to that. Um, and so let's talk about what we're doing in those ways. Uh, talking about issues that don't happen in our schools, that aren't backed up by people who very often don't spend time in our schools, never uh, have been in a classroom in years, it's kind of frustrating to teachers because they feel like they are being attacked, and they they are. I want to bring Andrew Atterbury back into the conversation again, covers education policy in Florida for Politico. And, and Andrew, I wish you could pick up on what the other Andrew, Andrew Spar was saying just a moment ago about this, this teacher shortage issue that's in Florida right now, short about 5,800 teachers, I gather. What's contributed to it? And um, sort of what, what, what's, the, what's the prognosis for, for how, you, how you narrow that gap? Sure. And Governor Ron DeSantis and his education commissioner, Manny Diaz, had a an event last week to try to tout some plans for uh, making the teacher shortage a little better. One of the issues with those plans, though, is I think they're, they're for next legislative session, so it's not really going to help folks right now. Uh, and the issue, I mean, time and time again, people say that a lot of time it has to do with teachers aren't getting paid. They don't feel like they're fairly compensated. And what's really unfortunate about that is that this year, the legislature put more money into teacher pay than they ever had, like in the history of Florida. And they're, and the governor's big idea is that he wants to make every uh, salary for a new teacher from a, for a starting teacher be $47,500, which it sounds good. But I think when people look at other jobs that are comparable, that it's just not quite as mu- enough. And as uh, Andrew Spark had testified to, that's created a lot of issues with veteran teachers because they feel like now like a new teacher is basically getting the same money that they've been working for mm-hmm. quite a few years to get. And that's created, I think, like what they call compression in the wage scale. It's not an easy fix. And, it's, and that's the thing that's really clear. So I think money is a big part of it. But then, of course, a lot of teachers will say that these policies are, are a big reason that people don't want to stay in the classroom. People are getting burnt out. It sure doesn't seem like the COVID pandemic helped anybody want to go be a teacher. I, I don't think anybody saw, saw what happened in COVID. And they're like, oh, yeah, let me, let me jump on board now. So all these things kind of happen at once. And, and that's what really what's really crazy is that Florida has pumped so much more money into teacher salaries. But even though they made made that push, like there's still not enough teachers. So something something clearly isn't working there. Andrew Atterbury, referencing that that uh, speech that the governor gave last week, let's take a listen to some of what the governor had to say. If you served in the military for at least four years, were honorably discharged, have taken 60 college credits and pass a subject area exam, we want you to be able to teach Florida students. Our veterans have a wealth of knowledge and experience they can bring to bear in the classroom. And with this innovative approach, they will be able to do so for five years with a temporary certification as they work towards their degree. For too long, the requirements to be a teacher have been too rigid, with union bosses insisting that all educators get certain credentials that often have little impact on teaching performance. Andrew Atterbury from Politico, I want to go to you lastly here uh, and just help us, give us your perspective on, again, how seismic this could be, sort of what you'll be watching for as we find out the results from these school board races across the state of Florida tomorrow. Sure. Well, like I mentioned earlier, there's there's seven races for sure where they're quote unquote nonpartisan, but there's endorsements from the governor, who's a Republican, 
and people who are tied to Democrats. I think that's a big, that's a big, that's a nice way to kind of hone in. Okay, see, here, where do people actually side on this? The thing I'm really curious about, everyone says education is so hot right now. I, I'm curious, how does turnout look? Mm-hmm. Are more folks going to turn out because these are school board elections that typically don't get a lot of play compared to, you know, state or, or federal races? Are more people going to come out and actually get their voices heard? And, and where do they side? Do they side with these candidates who are backed by the governor? Or do they decide with the candidates who are incumbents who are maybe the ones who are endorsed by Democrats? It's, it's, it's going to be pretty fascinating. Watching turnout, Andrew Atterbury, who covers education policy in Florida for Politico. Tina Deskovich co-founded the nonprofit Moms for Liberty. She's been campaigning with Governor Ron DeSantis for school board candidates across the state of Florida. And Andrew Sparr joined us as well, Florida Education Association president. Appreciate all of you for being on the show today. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.